to remain in the family. They cover all the best years of my life, and it will do you no harm to read them. But if you show them around or lend them to strangers, you do so at your own great peril. If you publish them, then that, I should imagine, would be the end of both you and your publisher simultaneously. For you must understand that thousands of the heroines whom I mention in the diaries are still only half dead and if you were foolish enough to splash their lily-white reputation with scarlet print, they would have your head on a salver in two seconds flat, and probably roast it in the oven for good measure. So you'd better be careful. I only met you once. That was years ago in 1921, when your family was living in that large, ugly house in South Wales. I was your big uncle, and you were a very small boy, about five years old. I don't suppose you remember the young Norwegian nursemaid you had then? A remarkably clean, well-built girl she was, and exquisitely shaped even in her uniform, with its ridiculously starchy white shield concealing her lovely bosom. The afternoon I was there, she was taking you for a walk in the woods to pick bluebells, and I asked if I might come along, and when we got well into the middle of the woods, I told you I'd give you a bar of chocolate if you could find your own way home. And you did. See Volume 3. You were a sensible child. Farewell, Oswald Hendricks Cornelius. The sudden arrival of the diaries caused much excitement in the family, and there was a rush to read them. We were not disappointed. It was astonishing stuff. Hilarious, witty, exciting, and often quite touching as well. The man's vitality was unbelievable. He was always on the move from city to city, from country to country, from woman to woman, and in between the women he would be searching for spiders in Kashmir or tracking down a blue porcelain vase in Nanking. But the women always came first. Wherever he went he left an endless trail of females in his wake, females ruffled and ravished beyond words, but purring like cats. Twenty-eight volumes, with exactly three hundred pages to each volume, takes a deal of reading, and there are precious few writers who could hold an audience over a distance like that. But Oswald did it. The narrative never seemed to lose its flavour. The pace seldom slackened, and almost without exception, every single entry, whether it was long or short or whatever the subject, became a marvellous little individual story that was complete in itself. And at the end of it all, when the last page of the last volume had been read, one was left with the rather breathless feeling that this might, just possibly, be one of the major autobiographical works of our time. If it were regarded solely as a chronicle of a man's amorous adventures, then without a doubt there was nothing to touch it. Casanova's memoirs read like a parish magazine in comparison, and the famous lover himself, beside Oswald, appears positively undersexed. There was social dynamite on every page. Oswald was right about that. But he was surely wrong in thinking that the explosions would all come from the women. What about their husbands? The humiliated cock-sparrows, the cuckolds? The cuckold, when aroused, is a very fierce bird indeed, 
and there would be thousands upon thousands of them rising up out of the bushes, if the Cornelius Diaries, unabridged, saw the light of day while they were still alive. Publication, therefore, was right out of the question. A pity this, such a pity, in fact, that I thought something ought to be done about it. So I sat down and re-read the diaries from beginning to end, in the hope that I might discover at least one complete passage which could be printed and published, without involving both the publisher and myself in serious litigation. To my joy I found no less than six. I showed them to a lawyer. He said he thought they might be safe, but he wouldn't guarantee it. One of them, the Sinai Desert episode, seemed safer than the other five, he added. So I have decided to...